Welcome to the Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, I have author Scott Stinswick on, who wrote um, the Mastering the Great Table and uh, Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy, the Enochian Magic series. And uh, I've, I've been really diving into Enochian and I really like your work. So it's a pleasure to have you on today. So can you introduce yourself and how you got into esoteric and occult practices in general? Um, sure. So I'm I'm Scott Stenwick. Um, I'm the author of the Mastering Enochian Magic series from Pendrag Publishing. Um, I am a member of the OTO. I am a longtime magical practitioner. I've been at this for like more than 30 some years. I kind of started in high school and sort of solidified stuff in college. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm 51 now. So um, so I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing Enochian for a long time. Um, I interest in Enochian magic kind of got started with um, uh, some of the classes I took in college, looking at the history of the Renaissance, um, the Hermetic movement, and that kind of brought, brought me to the study of John Dee. And looking into John Dee's stuff, I just, I found it particularly interesting. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm also, you know, into computers, I work in information technology, and I thought it was fascinating that with D's work, and pretty much only D's work, you have a system of magic, it's a grimoire type system, where you actually have the source code to it, basically. You've got all these diaries of how they wrote it up, how they received the information, and you know how they how they got it, and so so that really kind of piqued my interest, both the interest in you know esotericism and in computers. So um, growing up, I was my great grandmother was a member of a group called the Brotherhood of Light, which was uh, founded by Albert Benjamin. It's not the Hermetic Brotherhood of Light; that's a different group. Um, but and she was a medium, and she was an astrologer um, in uh, Red Wing, Minnesota, which is a little town. Um, about an hour southeast of the Twin Cities, which is where my family's from. Now, I never actually met her. She died a year and a half before I was born. Um, but one of the things that having that kind of a family did that I really appreciated, you know, I or appreciate, you know, in retrospect, you know, reading over some of the occult stuff that people have and write about is I never got any static from my parents about being interested in the occult at all. And apparently a lot of people did. Um, so, you know, I get static about a whole lot of other things. You know, I was a nerd and all this kind of stuff. You know, when you're a nerd in <laughs> elementary school, you know what that's like, right? You know, so my conflicts were more like in that area. And, you know, there wasn't really a lot of pushback as far as, oh, you're reading about occult books, you know, you're looking at tarot cards, you know, you're, you're talking to spirits maybe on like Ouija boards and stuff. I, I did all that stuff when I was a teenager. And yeah, never got, you know, any pushback or anything about that. And so I have this kind of, so I, I kind of tell people sometimes that, well, I'm not really a generational occultist because, you know, there isn't really that connection. Like neither of, neither of my parents are practitioners, but um, my great grandmother was. And so there was kind of like a family history of it. So I maybe got like a little bit of that. Um, unfortunately, one of the things that um, 
I wound up not actually learning her system. What I wound up getting more into was like the Golden Dawn Crowley side of things first. And so unfortunately trying to integrate Brotherhood of Light, I mean, I've got some, some of her like vintage books, you know, in my collection. I got some really nice stuff from the Brotherhood of Light, but they use a completely different system of the Tree of Life. And so it's like none of the attributions line up. It can't really, be, basically you learn one system and it's like, well, am I going to go to the trouble, learn a whole other one? I'm probably not going to do that. So the system that I wound up learning was more, you know, the Golden Dawn side of things than Crowley, and that eventually led me to Thelema. Okay. So, um, so, so there, so there's that as far as you know my background there. Uh, my, you know, I have a degree in experimental psychology, um, so I look at this stuff from a, as scientific a perspective as I can. So I really appreciate, you know, Crowley's scientific illuminism idea, you know, the method of science, the aim of religion and so forth. And while I understand that we're really not at the point with the tools that we have, the measuring instruments we have and so on, uh, to really build a formal scientific model of magic, um, the main problem being that we don't have a good model of consciousness that's been, you know, verified and that everybody agrees on and that we sure. have a tool to measure. And so since, I mean, your consciousness is one of the key elements of any magical operation, there isn't a good way. There, we don't have like a consciousness measure. That's really what we need. Little device put on somebody's head that measured their state <laughs> of consciousness. Hey, then we could go ahead and do some really formal stuff. And we are moving in that direction. Um, you've got companies like Emotive now that are coming out with um, better and better EEG machines. And while right. I do think, while I do think that you know the brain, the measure of brain waves is not a measure of consciousness, it might be an adjacent measure of consciousness. So in other words, if we could identify a certain kind of brain state that corresponds to a successful magical operation, you might be able to measure that with an EEG. But of course, it would take a lot of research to get to that point. For um, sure. So, We're kind of limited by our current technology and current understanding of consciousness. But uh, yeah, there are those little, um, like you can buy them on Amazon. As you mentioned, they measure your brain waves. And so you can see like a lot of people use them, I guess, these days during meditation. And so mm -hmm. it creates like a little, uh, you know, people have like fitness trackers where it says like you got your 10,000 steps in today yep. or whatever. Um, it's the same kind of thing. Like it'll track your um, like what brave uh, brain waves, you know, sort of theta mm -hmm. and alpha and stuff like that. And it's pretty interesting, you know. So yeah, now the problem is that with some mm -hmm. of those machines is that in order to really get a snapshot of what you're looking at, um, mm -hmm. you have to have an axial positioning sensor on the device. So you have to know where the brainwave is coming from, and that's harder to do. Um, aggregate brainwaves are helpful, but we really need something that looks at functioning in different areas. Um, it's like I, I, wrote up, I wrote up this model of magic that was based on aggregate brainwaves back in like 2006. They had this idea, oh, the brainwaves would step through this pattern, right? And it was based on um, largely on a book called Zen Brain Reflections by James Austin that came out in 1999, where he was talking about research with advanced meditators. I'm of the opinion that these advanced meditation samadhi type states, they're similar to the states that go into magic. It's like, um, you know, absorption in something is connection between microcosm and macrocosm. And so that's how magical effects work. So 
based on that, it's, oh, hey, you know, we, so this brainwave, it, it, you know, it starts at this level and then steps up and then drops down. And so that in 2008, I read um, James Austin's next book, which was Zen Brain Reflections. And that's eight more years of research. And it's like, oh, all the meditation research has to be redone with positioning sensors because aggregate doesn't work. It's basically <laughs> what came out of that one. So it's like, I well, know. I'm glad I didn't publish that and feel silly. But, you know, so the <laughs> okay. aggregate brainwave thing, yeah, that that is not really the deal. But mm -hmm. um, it is true, though, that I think, you know, our understanding of the brain is, is getting better all the time. Um, there are a couple of models of consciousness that are out there that are fairly good. Um, personally, I think the best one that's currently out there is uh, Penrose Hammeroff, which is based on uh, quantum microtubule interactions in the brain. I'm not sure if that's going to turn out to be the final mechanism, but they've done a lot more research than any of the other people, and their model is further along. Also, I have a little bit of kind of sympathy for that because I loved uh, Penrose's book, The Emperor's New Mind. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but he talks about how um, his argument is basically that consciousness must have some sort of interaction with quantum physics to work the way that it seems to work. So, so that, that's kind of, you know, kind of my perspective there, but I'm very open to changing my mind on that. You know, if somebody comes up with, you know, fantastic data for a different model, it's just right now that seems to be the one that's furthest along. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. I haven't heard of that model before, so uh, maybe, yeah, if you can recommend, you mentioned, what was the name of the book that uh, sort of proposes so, that model? Okay, so the original book, okay, which is, so uh, this is a little bit, a little bit longer discussion. The original book that, so Roger Penrose, he's a mathematician, he proposed, he wrote this book called The Emperor's New Mind that was published in, I believe, 1988. And The Emperor's New Mind, it's, it's an argument as to why he thinks consciousness has to have some sort of quantum component, okay? And it's a pretty, it's a pretty involved book. Penrose is a really smart guy. Um, real interesting stuff. Okay, so in the 1990s, Penrose was contacted by this guy, Stuart Hameroff, who was an anesthesiologist, okay? Mm -hmm. And Hameroff said, well, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, is there are these structures in the brain called microtubules. And what seems to happen is that when you anesthetize a person, they're unconscious, their brain is still working, but all the activity in the microtubules seems to shut down. Okay, so that was kind of the jumping off point for it. So now they've been working on, they've been working together um, since the 90s on elaborating on this model and how consciousness interfaces with the physical brain by means of these structures that are like quantum sized. Wow, very um, Yeah, I, I could send you a link to it. It's, it. it's also called the ORCH-OR model, which you probably won't remember. Uh, Penrose Hammer Off is a little bit easier. I mean, it has like an entry like on Wikipedia and stuff like that. I mean, it's not something that's real hard to find information on. Um, although you got to really kind of dig into it to figure, okay, so why do they think that? And then, well, that's quite a bit more involved than an overview of what it is. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely have to look into that because I'm very interested in different models of consciousness and um, especially seeing the scientific side come into it because, you know, a lot of people who are magic practitioners or you know, Eastern, maybe Buddhism or what what have you, uh, sort of have their own cosmology or model, but seeing like the scientific side come into it and actual like biological research is quite interesting, I, I would say. Pretty interesting to look into. 
You know, the Dalai Lama's made some really good statements on neuroscience. Dalai Lama's really interested in neuroscience. And he's coming, yeah, well, so if the neuroscience shows it's this way and Buddhism says it's this way, well, which way do you go? And he's like, yeah, you probably go with the science, which is kind of interesting to hear a spiritual leader saying that. <laughs> so, that is interesting, yeah. Very, very That was a couple of, couple of years ago, I think, was was when that one came out. Um, oh, that was when I saw it. It might be older, but but yeah, um, the Dalai Lama, um, he he and some of his some of his associates have been working with uh, neuroscientists for a while, doing different experiments yeah. on meditation and stuff. That that's where some of these advanced meditator experiments come mm -hmm. from. And it's mm -hmm. like nobody's done this with Western practitioners. It's just I guess okay. Well, if you're a Buddhist, it's like more acceptable. I I don't know, but I, I think we mm -hmm. may have some interesting stuff in our system that would be worth exploring. Oh, for sure. For sure. I like that the Dalai Lama said that because, uh, well, one interesting part about Buddhism is um, at least the Buddha's original teachings, he taught to question everything that he says and question everything he wrote down, where a lot of religions are sort of like, no, this is it. You have to believe this book and whatever it says in it. Right. So uh, the fact yeah. that, you know, he's he's open enough to say, yeah, maybe we should follow the science. Right. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that's a quite a degree of openness, I would say. Um, okay, yeah, I've actually read your book, uh, Mastering the Great Table. I found it really interesting. And I have your other book as well, um, mm -hmm. uh, Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy, which I haven't read yet. But um, yeah, I'm curious because there are a lot of books on Enochian magic. And um, one good thing, I guess, that I got into it a bit later was that now you have all the diaries. Like right here by my bed, I have uh, Dr. John Dee's uh, Spiritual Diaries, translated by Skinner. And mm -hmm. uh, Joseph Peterson's uh, John Dee's Five Books of Mystery, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of the, like, the original materials have been translated and they're available for, you know, you can purchase them on Amazon now, right? Whereas, like, maybe yeah. it was, like, much harder to get a hold of this. And it was mostly just, like, Golden Dawn versions of, you know, Enochian uh, well, material up... and things along these lines, right? Yeah, but, I mean, uh, my version of Casaman, I've got a facsimile of the magical child. So Casaman is like the later diaries that address the Great Table. It was the first publication of it in 1659. Um, I, so I have a facsimile of that that I got in the early 90s. You could get a hold of that, but it was kind of expensive. Um, mm -hmm. Five Books of Mystery was a lot harder. Uh, Peterson did an edition of it that was available through um, Adam McLean's like uh, Alchemical Press. I forget what that was called, but... Um, I did get my hands on one of those, and it's the original version of the mass market five books of mystery, but the mass market one is so much better. I mean, it's like, you know, and I mean, not only that, you could find like all this stuff from the British Museum, too. It's like all the stuff is online. You know, I mean, if you go to my blog, I mean, it links to another blog site that hosts it, but... Um, if you go to my blog, go to Nokia source materials, you can just bring up, you know, the scans of the stuff. I mean, it's great. Well, this lone mic, uh, microfilms and what have you, right? Mm, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Um, so I, I imagine, I mean, when I read your book, you mentioned how you did a lot of experimentation with Enochian and you had these mm -hmm. um, like group uh, group practices and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. And so is is most, most of your books are based on um, the experimentation, I would imagine, right? And the group workings you did? Right. I mean, they're, they're based on workings that I personally have done and on workings that I've done with a group. I mean, some of these were, you know, I started doing Enochian um, in the early 90s. Um, I had this idea I was going to, like, write this fantastic Enochian book called The Enochian Universe that I was working on, like, around 1997. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and it was going to, it was going to talk about, you know, 
basically what I thought saw was the real deficit in what was out there for the Enochian system at the time, which was, you know, that you had a lot of material on the Golden Dawn. And the only thing that you really had that did anything like taking the Enochian system and looking at it, you know, more like a system of grimoire magic, like in, in the period, um, was Jeffrey James' Enochian Evocation at the time that was only available from Heptangle Press. came out in 1983, so it, it's, it was available, but, you know, not a very large print run of those. Um, it was later, it's later been republished, I think, I think Weiser has it now, and it's called The Enochian Evocation of Dr. John D. Or may, maybe it went to Llewellyn. It's one of these books, it's been, there's a couple of different versions that have been published of it. Um, right. And back in the early 90s, I had I had the Heptangle version, and I had my True and Faithful Relation. And, I mean, I got stuff like the Schuler books, but the, most of the Schuler books were kind of cheesy, you know? It's like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree. Okay. Okay, Enochian physics. All right. <laughs> I'm just right. going to say that. So, all right, so I'm scientific-minded, right? And Enochian physics had one of the best blurbs I had ever seen for a book. It's how the Enochian universe works with the forces of modern physics. I'm like, wow, right? Okay, so I got the book, and it, it is one of the worst books I've ever read. It's like, physics works, high school, it's like, you know, force and mass works like this. This does not contradict this monad model that I proposed in chapter one. Next one. Wade is like this. This does not cut. Like, what? <laughs> okay, you're saying it doesn't contradict this model you came up with, but it's like, so what? I, mean, I need to see experiments that show how magic, and they didn't do any of that. It was like, you know, it was clearly very, getting to the very point. Cartoony. Very cartoony, right? Yeah, well, it was clear that it was clear that they were getting to the point where they had kind of run out of source stuff, and they were just kind of slapping Enochian on other stuff. Um, you know, the idea behind that their last book, The Angel's Message to Humanity, had an interesting idea, but I'm not convinced that they experimented with it enough to really flesh it out or, and, you know, so much of the material in that was skewed. I mean, the Schulers were theosophists, and so it's like, so there's this whole theosophical skew to their take on Enochian, which I, I'm not really that into myself, so... I mean that that was another barrier. I mean, I so I do think that their their very first book um on like what on Enochian magic that they came out with is reasonable if you are an absolute beginner and you just want to learn the Golden Dawn system. I think it's okay sure. for that. Um, you know, obviously it's a jumping off point. It's like they don't teach you enough to do the complete system in it and you have to work on your own, but it gives you an idea of what it's about. It's written pretty simply. It's short. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good overview of, um, you know, how, you know, the Golden Dawn and then also how, you know, Crowley did the system. And... So that's kind of interesting. And then you, then their advanced Enochian magic is basically summarizing the vision and the voice. I don't know if you've seen that one, but I have not. Uh, so, yeah, it, it just go it just basically goes through. Well, this error is this, and here's the description. Oh, it's basically I did, I did, yeah. And it tells you, yeah, it kind of summarizes the vision and the voice, and it tells you like you're supposed to see this when you're in this yeah. sort of like forcing a cosmology, uh, like what. Forcing visions on you that like, oh, if you don't see this, it's you're wrong or something. That's the vibe I got. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and that's 
that's so unfortunate that that people do that and you know it's so unfortunate that people do that today like this gatekeeper kind of stuff well you're supposed to do it this way if you're not doing it this way you're doing it wrong and if you see something different you're doing it wrong and you know it's like i'm i'm all about you know do it and experiment with it you know see what happens you know learn the basics but then you know go from there that's kind of what i was trying to do with my books so one of the things that you'll find, especially if you go through, well, I mean, you've read Mastering the Great Table. It doesn't have a lot of like complex analysis of linguistics or cosmology or any of that stuff in it. And that was very deliberate. Okay, kind of getting back to the question that we're sort of on, I digressed a little bit there. Um, but okay, so the thing is that I don't personally feel like um, you know, I puzzled over things in Enochia, and I've come up with some solutions to puzzly things in Enochia, and I've come up with some ideas of how I maybe think this or that should be interpreted. But, I mean, in the final analysis, what you need to do is you just need to work the system. Make contact with the spirits, and then be like, okay, so, and you'll find out for yourself. Um, I have yet to come across somebody who published some sort of, you know, secret about Enochian that had much of an effect on my work. I'm like, what do you do with this? Okay, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a big one that should be a big one, but it seems like, um, it seems like I, my stuff seems to work fine with with the arrangement that I have. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Colin Campbell, um, who um, he uh, he wrote a book called he's wrote written a couple of books on grimoire magic, but he wrote a book called John D's Magic Seal that you can find on Amazon, mm -hmm. and it's pretty interesting. He actually comes up with a fairly convincing argument that D made a mistake interpreting the angel's instructions for the Sigillum de Ameth, which is kind of a big deal. Okay, mm. it's one of the principal tools of, of Enochian magic. And people have been using, you know, the D version, you know, forever and, you know, mm. getting you know, real good results with it and stuff. And I mean, it is possible that, but basically what he showed is he found an inconsistency in how it's put together. And I don't know if that's necessarily a mistake, but it is definitely inconsistent. Okay, so it's like it's like a way. I, I, I'll try to kind of explain what it is. There's there's a way you've got these tables of names that D is working with to derive it, and for um and it's like there's like four sections, and for three of the sections D reads it diagonally one way, but then for the fourth one he reads it a different way. So it's like okay, why why is he suddenly reading this different than all the others? And for all I know that could be something in the system that's important. In other words, there's like some kind of dynamic balance there where the last one does have to be different. Because, you know, sure. he put it together, he said, angels, is this right? The angels were like, oh yeah, it's definitely right. You know, what you did is correct. Okay, so, you know, I don't know. But then I'm like, okay, how is that really going to affect my work? I mean, I suppose I could make another Sigillum de Ama following it the other directions, and I could test them back and forth. I mean, that might be a thing that I could do. I haven't gone and done it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm a lot more interested in, you know, I mean, if somebody could say, here's the secret method I worked out. And when you cast something with this, where you were getting, you know, an 80 to 1 probability shift, it's going to jump to 130 to 1. That's what I'm interested in. Okay. Mm -hmm. If somebody has something like that, and I don't think I've seen anything like that from anybody.
Uh, and that doesn't mean that it's not out there. It doesn't mean that it couldn't be, that there isn't experimentation that could be done along those lines. But my focus was to get people to the point where they could just take the book and they could do the magic. And so I have instructions on how to do it. And I am helped a bit by the fact that the, the attributions I use are all just the ones out of the diaries. I don't use the Golden Dawn Concourse of Forces, which is much more complicated. And so, but, you know, I think that, you know, the stuff that I'm doing is more like, kind of like what James was doing, except I've actually like laid it out with a full template of how to do the operations. Um, that's something that you don't find in a lot of books on magic. It's like, all right, here are these pieces that, and you learn them. Okay, now how do you put them together? And now you can't find that. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. so how is that useful? You know, it's like, so I could do five different rituals that I need to do this, but I, you know, my book doesn't tell me the order they go in and it doesn't tell me what I do with them. I mean, it's kind yeah, of incomplete. Right. And then, you know, you've got, that, that, that you've got, okay, so it's not really complete. And then you've got all the rest of the book going on about, you know, you know, linguistic attributions of the tables and the sigillum de ameth and all this kind of stuff that like <laughs> is not really useful at all to a practicing magician unless you're you know really going to be a scholar about it and you know if you want to be a scholar about Enochian I mean I think that's fine too like I say I'm not I'm not a gatekeeper I think the whole gatekeeping mm -hmm. thing is dumb I think people want people should be able to you know work with this stuff the way they want to work with it um, and my, I'll, what I tell people is, so the first rule of magic is that if it works, it works. Okay. If you're doing something and you're doing a practice and you're getting good results, I will never tell somebody, well, you know, you're getting good results, but you're not really doing it right. It's like, well, you're doing it right. If you're getting the results is how I see it. Exactly. So. Exactly. Everyone has different approaches. And like you said, um, even if something could be slightly off or wrong, but you're it's still working, then it's working for you, right? Like, right. even if, say, for example, like you mentioned, reading the uh, Sigil and DMF in, you know, if you change the order or something, maybe right. it has an effect. You, you'd have to split mm -hmm. test it, but if it's working right. good for you, I mean, what's the old adage? If it if it ain't broke, if it ain't broken, don't fix it, right? So yeah, uh, pretty much. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, unless no. you're optimizing, and there's a whole process sure. to go about when you're optimizing, change like one variable at a time do the operate so do the operation the way you're doing it change your one variable do it again see if there's a difference you know try to build up a sample size you know look at probability look at the statistics look at all that stuff and it's like you know man if we had if we had this approach like 200 years ago to magic and we actually had a thing where okay so we just jumped into the scientific method like what the physical sciences did okay it's like we would be so far ahead from where we are now in magic. But instead of that, you know, all these secrets got locked up in different orders and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. nobody shared their information. There's no peer review. There's like nothing because, oh, well, we have this system and we protect our system. And then we over here, we have this system. And it's like, and nobody really knows which one works better or if there's a difference. I mean, there should be a difference if there's a difference in methodology, but maybe it's not a very big difference and stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, I, I still see that. And, you know, my, okay, my books don't talk about secrets. Okay. Mm -hmm. There really aren't secrets. Okay. Mm -hmm. The only secrets that there are are the secret of, well, now you've experienced this, so you know what it's like. 
You know, it's like I could tell, I could describe, oh, and when a Nokia spirit shows up, this, 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 this. Okay, I could do that. But even sure. if I tell somebody that, it's like they, they, they haven't had the experience. It's like it yeah. has to do with, yeah, what what have you experienced? And it's like, you know, it's like the whole, the whole gnosis thing. It's like, well, you get it when you get it. You know, hard to right. describe, right. difficult. And how you do it is you diligently do the practice and you do the work and you just keep going with it and you persevere. Right. In some ways, I feel like it could also be a bit damaging on the practitioner if you're like, kind of like going back to those shoulder books, if you're like, when you scry this aether, you're supposed to see this and this is supposed to happen. It's sort of just robbing the practitioner of their own personal gnosis and their own vision, yeah. their own unique yeah. revelations that would be unique to their life. Right. And so, um, yeah, maybe giving a general outline can be helpful, but it's like <laughs> sort of forcing on visions or, you know. What like this is supposed to happen? I feel like that can be more detrimental than helpful, really. You know? Oh, so. definitely. It's like so they get this information, but it's like, all right, how do you how do you demonstrate that this information that you're getting is really what you saw, or was it just you kind of just went with your preconceived notions that you saw because you read it over here? You don't exactly. really know. And I mean, th there's techniques you can use to try and get around that, but it's it's, it's annoying. I mean, it's like. What, what would be really interesting is somebody who did, you know, went through all the Aethers, got all their own information without ever having read Crowley, and then go back and compare that to Crowley. Now, that's interesting. And yeah, then look at, okay, well, what are the commonalities between these accounts? Are there any? And, you know, I would think that if there are, you know, completely out of the blue, well, those commonalities might be, you know, the important, you know, like key points in the construction of an aether or how you experience it. And if you've got agreement on a point between, you know, multiple practitioners, it's like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. It's not like one interpretation that's gotten, you know, just thrown out there and repeated. Mm, yeah, exactly. Well, one thing I found uh, very interesting about your book is that, because I've read, you know, a handful of um, books on Enochian, and I, as far as I know, or as far, far as I remember, um, most of the books I've read, when they call the angels of the great table, they call sort of individual angels, right? Like of the sub angles, the carib angels, and you know the seniors and what have you. Yeah. But in your book, in your book, it's interesting because your approaches um, you call like groups of them, right? Like so, for example, yeah. say you're calling a senior, you would call all the seniors, or say you're calling um, the carubic angels, you would call um, you know pretty much like a whole lot of them, right? Like a whole group yep. of them. And those so, those con those conjurations are how D had them structured in Sloan 3191. Okay. So it actually, John D, it actually yeah, makes John, a lot of sense too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John D did not have them, you know, looking at individual angels. I mean, and there's all sorts of stuff like the sub angles and that. The the D the angels didn't tell D there were elemental sub angles. <laughs> it's like they, they imply that the main table itself is elemental, but yeah, that subangle thing that comes from um, Thomas Rudd in the Treatise on Angel Magic, which was published around 1700. So mm -hmm. D had been dead for 92 years at that point, um, mm -hmm. and he Rudd was trying to build this coherent system of angelic and demonic magic and put the whole thing together into one big system. And he decided that the right way to do the great table 
was to attribute the 16 subquadrants to the 16 sides of geomancy. And there's no evidence he ever did anything with the geomancy or the signs of geomancy. Okay, and that's also where Golden Dawn, Enochian, Gematria comes from. So the Golden mm -hmm. Dawn attributed 16 letters based on how they appeared in the subquadrants uh, mm -hmm. to gematric values based on the gematric values for those uh, sides of geomancy. So we, here we've got an attribution built on top of another attribution, and neither of them were original. Um, right. Rudd is also the guy who came up with, maybe you've seen it, the version of the Enochian ensigns of creation that have the goetic demon names on them from the Lamegaton. Yeah, those uh... <laughs> don't go together either. The Lamegaton <laughs> is a completely different system. Right, right, right. And so, yeah, so there, there was a lot of stuff that even, even, you know, up until like 1700, you had people messing around with the Enochian stuff. And then after 1700, it seems like it goes dormant for a while. And then, you know, Mathers and Westcott kind of pick it up in the late 1800s when they're putting together the Golden Dawn stuff. And then they add a whole bunch of other stuff on top of it. I mean, basically, sure, practically sure, nothing sure. in the Concourse of Forces is original to D. It's stuff that they added based on how they thought uh, Rosenross' version of Christian Kabbalah mapped onto the Enochian system. And Rosenroth is uh, Norvon Rosenroth, who wrote the Kabbalah Unveiled. I believe it was published in the 1660s. It was one of the early works that embraced the, the so-called Kircher Tree, which is from... Um, Kircher Tree is like from, what, about 1630, 1640, something like that, Athanasius Kircher. Um, put together his own version of Christian Kabbalah, you know, disregarding, you know, the traditional Jewish systems as far as like letter arrangement and all this kind of stuff. But then that became the system that later Hermetic Magical Kabbalah was based on. And so the Golden Dawn, well, they were going back as far as Rosenross, so the 1660s. But then they took that and then they took um, Rudd stuff and then they kind of built their Enochian system that way. And I mean, it's what they built is it's this Baroque system. It's impressive <laughs> how much work they did on it. And no, I mean, I don't mean to say this to, to ridicule it at all. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, it's different. Um, there are plenty of magicians who work with that Golden Dawn arrangement of the system and get good results. Um, I just personally, what I wanted was more interested in is, you know, I'm fine with using modern techniques like pentagram rituals, hexagram rituals. I mean, you'll see those in my books. Mm -hmm. um, but what I don't want to be doing is I don't want to be using attributions that directly contradict the diaries, which in a lot of cases, sure. the Concourse of Forces leads you to do. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, they also, as you mentioned, they also use a lot of uh, Rudd stuff, which was sort of just a mi mishmash, as you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he's just mixing up Goetia with, like, insane well, with creation. You know, there, there are people, okay, so Rudd is the guy who put together the um, the names of the Shemhama Forash and the um, Goetic Demons. And there are people who use that system and say that it works. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, some of the stuff he put together is stuff that endures to the modern age. But I mean, some of it like Goetia and Enochian, it's like, I, I can't tell you the number of people who, okay, I'm an Enochian author who will get on my blog and they'll be like, what? tell me all about the Goetia. And I'm like, you know, I've did a couple of rituals with the Goetia. I've never had a really big success with it. 
And mm. it's like, I don't consider myself an expert at all. And it's like, yeah. I, I would not be, you know, I mean, I could give somebody, you know, basic advice that I would give somebody working with any grimoire system. But I mean, at this point, I mean, that's really about it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, but, you know, people, oh, but you do a Nokian. And it's like, well, yeah, I do a Nokian. I really, um, like I say, I have done some Goetic workings, but not to anywhere near the degree of seriousness that I've applied to, um, like the Enochian stuff, um, like some of the more, you know, like the planetary magic, like the spirits and intelligences, that stuff. I know that really well. Um, and it's just, you know, I don't want to be trying be trying to present myself as a teacher on something where, you know, I'm maybe not a novice, but not by any means an expert on. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um... I'm curious, uh, what current practices do you do on a regular basis? And are, the, are those practices changing over time? Or how, how has your practice in general sort of evolved? And, you know, you mentioned you did a lot of work with Enochian. Is that something you still work with? Or are you doing other sort of workings these days? Um, practical workings, it's like Enochian is kind of my, my go-to system. If I really, really need something to work, I'll use Enochian. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are a few applications I found where stuff like the, the planetary magic, for whatever reason, it seems like it, it might work better. Um, you know, I do um, zodiacal elixir rituals. I mean, those are streamed on Facebook. Um, we've been doing that under the auspices of the OTO Lodge for um, about four years now. And so so what we'll do is we'll, it's it's a Eucharist ritual. So you have like a chalice of wine and then you go through this whole series of conjurations for the angel of the sign of the zodiac that the sun is in when you do the ritual. Mm -hmm. And um, that's pretty interesting. It's like you can, um, it was originally derived from the, from, an elixir right as a sort of a template from uh, Denning and Phillips planetary magic, but it's changed a lot since then. We've added a bunch of other elements to it that you don't find in there. You'll find a little bit of the same language in the charging elixir section. We've changed a lot of the rest of it though. So, I mean, so that's something we've been doing um, for, you know, the, for like the last four years. Um, I did, I actually did did an article on how I do that for a uh, Liber Spiritum, which was another anthology <clears throat> that mm -hmm. I did an article on evoking the zodiacal angels and mm -hmm. talking about how that stuff works. I would say probably over the last like five years or so, I've gotten much more into astrology than I was in magic. So that's one thing that's changed a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I spent some time studying um, like traditional Renaissance astrology with uh, Benjamin Dykes, who is a local practitioner who studied with uh, Robert Zoller, who is kind of the guy who's responsible for reviving a lot of Renaissance astrology. I think I think Warnock studied with Zoller too. I, don't quote me on that, but I think he did. Um, and Christopher Warnock, he's got a website where you could get like electional talismans and all this kind of stuff. And he does, he is much more into the astrology stuff than I am. But I do use it. Like things like, okay, you can calculate chart vectors, okay? Mm -hmm. Your chart vector is that's the strongest planet at the moment that you're doing your operation. And mm -hmm. I have a suspicion, I have not done enough research on this to prove it, that the system of the days and hours for planets might be a remnant of that larger system. Because mm -hmm. how that works is, so what you would be actually looking to do is you would be looking for doing your operation when 
your when the chart vector is the planet that you're working with when you're doing planetary magic or when you're doing zodiacal magic you want your chart vector to be a planet that rules or is exalted in the sign and that's going to give you better results and let's see there there's a way of doing electional timing looking at the moon's final aspect Mm -hmm. so the moon's final aspect that's the aspect it makes before makes before it goes into the deck that's the last aspect it makes before changing into the next sign and so the moon basically moves through the whole zodiac um, in a period of like 28 days and so what it'll do is but what you can look at is all right so casting okay today I'm casting this thing I'm doing an Aries operation and oh hey the moon's in Aries you know something like that well that's cool so then what is the last aspect it's going to make in Aries before then the next thing that happens is it changes into it would change into Taurus um mm. like like that that kind of an idea and so um and so that last aspect if it's a positive aspect like a trine or a sextile or a mm -hmm. conjunction then that's like an electional yes you're good to go if it's a square mm. or an opposition that that's like an electional no and you should find a different time to do your operation so I mean that that's a really simple way of doing that. I mean, so a lot of that stuff is on my blog too. Yeah, the chart wow. vector in Arabic is actually it's called Al Mubtaz, and there are a okay. lot of modern astrology programs that will calculate something called an Al Mutin. That's the same thing. It's a corruption of the Arabic into English. So Al Mubtaz <laughs> goes okay. to Al Mutin, and if you get your if you do a chart, you find the Al Mutin for the chart. You have software that does that. That's your chart vector. Okay, it's funny. Al Mutin. It sounds almost like the X Men or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's just, it's just you know, foreign words getting transliterated. So, so anyway, so um, as far as practical stuff, I pretty much do practical stuff as needed. Um, I use magic a lot. It's like if I want to shift something in my life, I'll be like, cool, I'll do magic for it. Um, I have been accused of doing things like, well, or I was specifically accused once by one by by one person of. Um, that or was told that using Enochian magic to deal with mundane stuff is like using a jackhammer to pound in a single nail. That was what they said. <laughs> and I'm like, and, and my take is, yeah, but the nail gets pounded in really good. You know, that's what I have to say about it. You know, it's like, I'm not going right. to mess around. If I really want something, I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to, I'm going to sure. use the magic that I have to make it happen. And I'm not going to worry about Oh, is this like more powerful than I need? I don't know. Shifting the material world is hard. You know, I want all the power I can get. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Use everything in your toolkit, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Use yeah. everything you have. Yeah. And, and, you know, as far as my daily practice, um, I do keep up my daily practice. I do uh, banishing pentagram ritual, invoking hexagram ritual. Um, I do. So, I'll, I'll do, um, sometimes I do the Star Ruby, Star Sapphire. Sometimes I do the Lesser Banishing Ritual, the Pentagram, and then a custom version of the Lesser Invoking Ritual, the Hexagram, that um, my magical working group wrote. That if you, if you like, watch one of our streamed um, Zodiacal Elixirs, you'll see me use it there. Um, and then I do the 11-fold 11, the 11 seal, which is the opening to Libra Reguli, and it's it, it's sort of like a middle pillar. So if somebody just okay. wants to do the, the basic, like more commonly accessible rituals, I'll say do the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, the lesser invoking ritual, the hexagram, the middle pillar, 
and then mm -hmm. do you know whatever additional practice you're going to do for the day and then just end with a Kabbalistic cross for your daily practice. Um, okay. And that seems to work pretty well for most of my students. Um, okay. One of the things that I do teach that I, I don't know that anybody else teaches this and uh, Donald Michael Craig argued with me about it, but um, <laughs> it was it is what I call the operant field. And I talk about it in the book where I'll take a lesser banishing pentagram ritual and I'll combine it with a lesser invoking hexagram ritual as the opening for a rite to create a field. And the idea behind that is, is that so the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram works on your sphere of sensation. It doesn't work on your room. It doesn't work on objects. Okay, um, you might be able to get it to work on some kind of an object field it really close to you. So it's like right within your aura or something like that. Why you'd want to do that, I don't really know. Um, and but, you know, you hear stories. Oh, well, there was a dark presence. So I did the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram and the room cleared up. People will talk about that. And the reason behind that, in my experience, is that spirit, if, if a, a random spirit is in a space and they see somebody start to do magic, they'll just hightail it out of there. Because magic mm -hmm. is one of the few things that can actually hurt a spirit. Mm -hmm. um, but the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, is it works on your sphere of sensation. It doesn't really affect other objects. It's like that was a thing at ceremonial magic school, too. Apparently, um, there was an argument there over whether or not the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, could banish your talismans if you didn't cover them up in your temple. No, <laughs> it doesn't do that. The reason that the reason, though, that they were saying it is mm -hmm. that apparently um, in one of Damien Eccles books that came out, he says that's how it works. And mm -hmm. he sold a okay. ton of books. And it's like, right. OK, well, OK, that's wrong. <laughs> OK, um, don't want to be a gatekeeper about it. I'm not trying to come off like that. But you really have, but the, the upshot is you really have nothing to worry about with your tools and stuff in your temple if you do a lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram. You know, it's sure. not going to damage your tool. It's not going to damage your talisman. But, you know, people, and, you know, if you want to shroud your talisman, you can. I mean, I'm not going to tell people I can't do it. But, you know, it's, I, I think, I don't find that it works that way. So now mm -hmm. the reason that you bring in the lesser ritual, the hexagram, is mm -hmm. that that then in the invoking form, you, you, you clear it, you kind of you clear out and purify your sphere of sensation when you do the lesser banishing pentagram. And then what you do is you pull in the, the macrocosmic forces of nature into that cleared out space when you do the invoking mm -hmm. version of the lesser hexagram. Lesser hexagram is macrocosmic, that affects spaces, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So by combining the two, you wind up with this kind of bubble or field where your thoughts from your sphere of sensation translate more easily into physical reality. And I've been able to test that out with probabilities and stuff like that. And it really does seem to work. Most of the students I have who've tried it, they're like, yeah, okay, you're skeptical about it, just try it. And they've tried it, they'll be like, wow, it works so much better. I've gotten a lot mm -hmm. of that kind of feedback from people. Yeah, and, yeah, so you do it the other way, you don't like the way I do it, I say, try it my way once, see what happens. You know, and if you don't <laughs> like it, go back to the other one. I'm cool with that. You know, I don't need to, I, I don't need to be like, well, you know, my status is derived from the number of people using my ritual forms and stuff like that. But, mm -hmm. but anyway, so, um, and that basically constitutes your circle. Okay. So is the field, it's like this bubble. And so, you know, it has both a protective effect and it has this concentrating of magical force kind of effect. And so, you know, 
you don't have to draw a physical circuit, a physical circle on the floor. Um, it, even uh, like Jake Stratton Kent did Geosophia, he says, yeah, imaginary circles were commonly used in antiquity. They were, you could look back sure. and see. And so that is basically, those rituals are basically creating your imaginary circle that is set to the scope of your operation. Do you want to work macrocosmically? That's the operant field. If you wanted to work microcosmically, you could do something like an invoking pentagram and then a banishing hexagram to seal out external influences. I mean, I cover that in the book, talking about the different kinds of fields. Um, right. And, and yeah, the other one that I like to make sure that people are aware of, it's like lesser doesn't mean bad and greater doesn't <laughs> mean awesome. Okay, because right. that nomenclature is just silly. And, you know, I, I, you, I previously thought that it came from the Golden Dawn and, like, Crowley put it into Libra. I think Crowley came up with it. It's not called the Lesser Ritual, the Pentagram, in the original Golden Dawn parlance, but it is in Libra O, and Crowley published it in the Equinox. So it's like, okay, so the Crowley came up with this. And it's, it's annoying because, yeah. okay, so Lesser Ritual, the Pentagram, and the Lesser Ritual, the Hexagram, and the Greater Ritual, the Pentagram, and the Greater Ritual, the Hexagram, they do completely different things. Okay, mm -hmm. it's like a greater hexagram is not a lesser hexagram that's souped up. It's a hexagram <laughs> of a particular aspect, like a particular planet. Okay, exactly. and the pentagram is of a particular element. Okay, mm -hmm. so, or or in the case of all four elements, it's specifically attributed to Malkut, which is the vision of the holy guardian angel. But yeah, so they're not the same at all. Okay, one is not a substitute for the other. One is not a souped up version of the other. They're different <laughs> classes of ritual. And it's like, you know, I really think if we called them general rituals versus specific rituals, I think that would be more accurate. But, you know, everybody sure. knows this lesser, greater thing. And so confusing right. though it sometimes is, um, you know, I think we're kind of stuck with it. But yeah, that's the way it is. It's uh, more or less confusing to new people who, you know, they open a book yeah. and like, oh, the lesser, this is, this is, <laughs> this is like inferior, <laughs> right? Yeah. The greater, this is the awesome version, right? So, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that anybody reading it who doesn't know, I mean, that's what it looks like. But then it's like, oh. you say, okay, so wait a minute. So these, you actually have to know all of these because they do different functions. It's not like you learn one and then, you know, the greater one replaces the lesser one you were doing. That's not how it works. And it's like, oh, okay. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so I kind of... I'm oh, sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, and I'm, I'm kind of digressing again. It's like, um, but um, to get back to then the practices that I do, okay, so I'll do, you do like this operant field type practice that opens your space. You do some kind of an invocation of the divine, which is like your preliminary invocation. This is a self-identification with God. So you could do that with the middle pillar where you're pulling, you know, the energy of the God names down through your body. Or you could do that with the 11-fold seal, which is from Libra Reguli, that's, um, that's a, that kind of works the same way. You know, I mean, once, once you get it down, you kind of have to get, get a little used to it. But yeah, the 11-fold seal works a lot like the middle pillar, but it's with the Thelemic deity names. So you have Nuit, Hadit, Rahur, Kuit, and with the specific pantheon versus the Kabbalistic God names in the middle pillar. Um, mm -hmm. Then what I usually do is I will do a quick um, yeah, Holy Guardian Angel invocation, and which is more like it's just basically a thing I recite and I visualize Holy Guardian Angel. And then I will do um, 
a basic statement of intent for you know going forward from the practice and that's it's based on um it's based on the statement at the end of the Gnostic Mass, where it's like, you know, bring me to the accomplishment of the great work, the summum bonum, true wisdom, and perfect happiness. Because I always okay. think you should do magic with an intent. Even your daily practice and your daily practice should just be, you know, make me happy, make me successful, make me a better magician, and so on. And you should be sending that out into the universe every day you do your practice. And then mm -hmm. finally, I'll just like, I'll seal that all off and close with the Kabbalistic cross. Okay. So that's what I, that's the practice that I do on a daily basis. And then sometimes if I'm wanting to meditate on something, you can, you know, I'll go through the statement of intent and then I could do, I'll do like a meditation for some period of time and then end that with the Kabbalist across. Okay. Um, I was actually really curious because you talked about like planetary magic and zodiacal sure. magic. Um, I haven't read your um, Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy yet, but um, <laughs> I'm curious if you sort of, um, sort of incorporate that in because you know yeah. you have like the days of the week and planetary uh, magic and then yep. incorporating like the seven um uh, uh like the kings and sons of light and stuff like that right. into that system is do you sort yeah. of um bring, tie those together i'm kind of, I'm kind of asking because i haven't read the book yet that, that um, yes i do um the heptarchia mystica is um is is basically um enochian planetary magic is basically what it is and you it's it's you know the intent of, of writing the books for the system was to have people read them in order. So um, I go into a little more detail on things like building the temple and stuff like that in Heptarchy. But then um, also part of the idea behind it is that, so this is, so Heptarchy is a fairly simple system compared to the whole like Enochian, that entire corpus of material. And so you have a king and prince for each of the days of the week, and then one more king and prince that rule over the whole system. And those are the spirits you're working with. Their powers are enumerated. They're laid out a lot like um, many of the other planetary grimoires, you know, um, stuff like the Arbitel and grimoires like that, where you're dealing with, um, you know, these spirits that are related to the planets and the days. Um, you know, there's a few elements that are specifically Enochian in there. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, it's like, basically you're doing planetary magic with the whole like D apparatus kind of thing with the holy mm -hmm. table and all that. And, you know, for the most part, there's a couple of odd things like what you do with talismans <clears throat> and, um, uh, but yeah, mostly if you conjure the spirit, you know, and into the, into the holy table, the whole D apparatus and, that's basically how it works. And I mean, it's quite a bit simpler than um, some of the other Enochian operations. But yeah, it's like the, the Heptarchia is, is definitely a bridge between the Enochian system and the more like the planetary magic of the period. Even like the Agrippa material, D would have been familiar with that. Um, and a number of other grimoires use that schema too. Okay, yeah, I definitely have to dive into that. And uh... I know a lot of people that I know that work with Enochian, they sort of skip over the uh, heptarchy. It's sort of a, I don't know, at least from people I know, it's, it seems a little bit less explored or perhaps worked with. Would you agree? Um, yeah, I would. Um, one of the reasons that, the other reason that I started with the heptarchy, okay, so it's, so it's, it's first of all, it's the historical order, okay? So the heptarchy stuff is earlier than the great table stuff. The great table mm -hmm. stuff is earlier than the aether stuff in the diaries. But second mm -hmm. of all, it is, you know, it's, I still think 
I have the only book out there that is specifically dedicated to the Heptarchy of Mystica. It's mentioned in a number of other books, but Mastering mm -hmm. the Mystical Heptarchy is the book that is specifically on the Heptarchia. And I don't think anybody else has a specific Heptarchia book, you know, besides yeah. like, you know, the, the Turner edition of the Heptarchia Mystica itself and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think there are any other, besides the original Don, uh, John D. material, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't yeah. think there's a whole book dedicated to it. Yeah, good point. That's a very good point. Um, yeah, you could make a case about the five books of mystery, except that the five books of mystery are the diaries that cover the reception of the material. But then in 1588, D. actually took that and turned it into a grimoire, which is the Heptarchia Mystica, which he didn't do with any of the other pieces of the system. Right, right, right. Exactly. So it was, uh, that's interesting. I like how you wrote the books in that order, sort of in the order that um, uh, it came to John D, right? Like the Mystical Eptarchy right. and then the Table. And then you do have a, uh, I don't know if you're in the, if you're still working on the book, but I remember reading on your blog, um, I think it's called I the 30 Years. I am still working on Mastering the 30 Years. <laughs> I'm going back and forth with my publisher today about it. Um, oh, wow. And it's, okay. It, no, it's it's going to be out soon. It's going to be really good. Yeah, it's going to oh. be it. It is okay. So it is, I think, the first book that really is going to talk about the primary function of the system of the airs and the parts of the earth, which is magic to affect political forces in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I went through and and reworked the names um, for the parts of the earth to remap them onto the tabula recensa, which, okay, so I mentioned the tabula recensa a little bit in Mastering the Great Table. Um, so D had, so the final version of the Great Table is this version called the tabula recensa, and it was received in 1587, and it's, it was the, it was the last version of the table that D got. So, but there's some controversy around it. Okay, and the controversy is that in 1587, it's like Dee and Kelly, they were trying to rectify this back and forth and they were having a lot of problems. And so Kelly, he like in the middle of the night, he goes down into the temple and says, oh, he like called up the spirits and had them go ahead and correct the table. Okay, mm. and so this is this final version. So some people are of the opinion that, well, you know, because Dee, Dee wasn't there with Kelly, it's not necessarily valid. However, um, Kelly showed it to Dee, Dee called up the angels, they worked together, Dee said, is this correct? The angels were telling him, yes, it's correct, this is the one you should be using. And so it's like, okay, so, so the point is, I could see where an intelligent person could land on either decision. Well, Kelly kind of did this on his own, he maybe right. could have been just doing this confirmation bias thing of, oh yeah, no, no, they're <laughs> saying it's great. Although, yeah. when he previously did that, he, he previously... Um, would do that on some occasions and the angels would like, would not like it. They would like give him like headaches and all this kind of stuff. And we yeah. didn't see that in that episode, or at least Dee didn't write it down. Um, right. So the original version, so. The, the golden gun goes with the original table, right? In their. Um, well, the golden guide goes with the original table, but then they had extra letters for letters that were changed. Uh, so if you take the golden dawn okay. table, some of the squares have four letters in them. And so what they, mm -hmm. that's what they do. Okay, so they, they start with the original. 
Mm-hmm. And so then, and and then they they worked from there. And you know, I mean, part of the part of the reason they did that was that that system was built by Mathers, basically going to the British Museum and looking at these D manuscripts page by page, not really reading through them like a book. And I mean, the the task of that must have been just monumental. And it is pretty impressive what they managed to do under those conditions. Um, but. Um, but so, so yeah, so they, they go with the basic arrangement. And then the Tabby Resensa, though, it moves some stuff around as far as the directions. And it also changes some of the names. Now, um, as far as I know, the closest version to the final version that's been published and out there is a version that was put together by uh, David Allen Hulse in the Key of It All book, too. And so he did kind of an interesting thing. So... Um, the parts of the earth are, there's this whole grid of sigils that map onto the great table mm-hmm. and they, they interlock like pieces of a puzzle. And then there's D is 1585. The sigils oh. of the governor, governors, is that right? Uh, they're, they're called the governors, but that's a longer conversation. Um, okay. so I, I, I actually think they're called governors based on a misreading of one of the sections of the true and faithful relation, which I talk about in the new book. Because if you look in Dee's Libra Scientia, they're not governing spirits. They are the name by which this part is governed. In other words, they're the name of the part in the angelic language. So they're mm-hmm. not spirits. They're, they're The spirits that govern those parts are actually the 12 zodiacal, what the Golden Dawn call angel kings. And so it's not quite the same as, as what you'll see and the golden dawn and lots and lots of and everybody pretty much talks about parts of the earth and governors it is not clear that they are spirits from looking at liber scientia but anyway so in liber scientia which is put together in 1585 there are some differences in the names from the original table and so at halstead he's all right well i have the grid of how these sigils go together i have what these names are supposed to be in 1585 i'll do my version of the table based on that and so he's got a version of the Great Table that has some letter changes from the original based on rebuilding the thing with the sigils from this later source for the names. Mm-hmm. So I would say, okay, that's probably accurate as far as 1585. Tabula Recensa is 1587. And, you know, I don't, you know, I fall on the side of, I think it's the final version. I go with it. Not everybody agrees, but, you know, maybe we're just not gonna. Yeah. Well, it's up to the practitioner, right, to decide. But uh, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. The more I research, it seems like the uh, tabula recensa sort of makes the most sense to me as well. So um, I'm actually really curious because you are, I know I followed your blog for a while, and um, you posted your, um, your like, ritual talks, right? And uh, yep. you are a member of the OTO. And so I'm yes. really curious about, you know, for me, I'm just a solo practitioner. I have a lot of friends that are, um, in the OTO and other groups, um, actually, where I am here in South Korea, there are there is no OTO body, but uh, I have some mm-hmm. friends in Japan that are in the OTO. They have a body there. Um, yeah, I'm curious what your opinion or your outlook is on uh, solo practice and self initiation versus uh, perhaps joining a group. Um, you know, working with other practitioners or joining a lodge, something along the lines of the OTO. What's your um, what's your outlook on that? Well, I think there are advantages to both. Um, you know, I am a member of the OTO. I've never been a member of any of the like AA groups that are out there. Um, mm-hmm. When we put together, my friends and I put together a magical working group. 
we patterned a lot of our operations basically on the AA structure, which you can find in Crowley. It's not super difficult. So, I mean, we work through the planets, elements, signs, you know, kind of the way you're supposed to do it in the tradition, but not in as, you know, formal or codified a way as you would find in like an AA or a Golden Dawn group. Um, the OTO is, um, very different from that. I mean, we don't we don't give you you know tests on magic when you take degrees in the OTL. Okay, um, you take a degree. Oh sure, we'll we'll recommend you know here are good practices that go with this degree. But you know we don't test you on those practices. And you know, you could just take another degree if you can get sponsorship. It's kind of more like more like a masonry kind of thing in that way. And there's a couple of things that are cool about that. So. The downside of it is somebody can theoretically be a high be get up to you know at least a certain point in the OTO and be a you know whatever degree and not really know a lot about magic. That is possible. You don't usually see that though. Um, the OTO system is more like um, in a lot of ways you get out of it what you put into it. And you know, I mean we make that pretty clear, you know, when you come into the system too. It's like you know, the OTO is basically about, you know, finding and doing your will. It's about, you know, developing, you know, your individual sovereignty, you know, as a being on this planet. And it, so, you know, it, it's up to you, you know, what you really want to work on. But one of the coolest things about it is, is, okay, let's say that I'm looking at something and, oh, I want to learn about, you know, this style of evocation. Okay, it's interesting maybe read a book on it. I go to Lodge and say, hey, has anybody here done this? And somebody probably will have. And they'll be like, all right, well, here, well, let, let me tell you what worked for me. And you get this kind of collaborative learning thing going. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's that's really cool. And I think, you know, if I were going to characterize what, you know, teaching in the new eon should look like with, you know, people doing their will being sovereign individuals, that's what I think it would look like. You know, it's more like, a fraternal organization where magicians can come together and do magic and talk about magic and learn about magic. So, mm. you know, it's like, um, and so, I mean, I will say that, you know, the OTO initiations, I feel like, you know, those have helped, you know, my spiritual development, have helped my magical practice and so on. But, you know, I also do a lot of things on my own as well. And I think that it's important to at least have some degree of, you know, some kind of peer reality check there with your magic. Um, and mm. I think that's another thing that, you know, is, hey, well, I did this and this and this. And so he's like, well, how do you know it wasn't this? Well, you know, that's a good point. I really should think about that, you know, kind of thing. And so. Getting different perspectives and different feedback. Right. And different, yeah, definitely. Because it is. It is very possible if you are a solo practitioner and you just like work on your own. Um, I mean, you can get to the point where, you know, you're doing stuff and, you know, it feels like it's working or whatnot, but then you go to a lodge, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I, I've been doing that ritual for 10 years, but I just saw this really cool thing that you did when you did that ritual. I'm going to integrate mm -hmm. that into my practice. You stayed a solitary practitioner. You never would have done that because you're not out there and you're not seeing what other people are doing. Right. So I think that's that's a big advantage of it for me. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, o the OTO as an organization is not the kind of, 
you know, it, it's not like joining Scientology or something like this. Where, <laughs> you know, it's okay. not like it's like where it's it's like this cult, right? Where oh well, you know, we're gonna tell you, you know, who you could socialize with. We could tell you, you know, what you could do, what you can't do, all this kind of stuff. Get really in your business or what? I mean, people are sovereign individuals, and mm -hmm. so the deal is that you know the the OTO really does not have that kind of an that that kind of you know destructive cult thing to it. Um, you know, in my experience, it's it's been, you know, you know, a good organization that, um, you know, provides a framework for people to do some of this stuff. Now, I won't say, you know, that, you know, you know, everybody in the OTO is is awesome. It was like Lon Milo Duquette at one point um, made the comment that, you know, thelemites can be assholes, but being an asshole doesn't mean you're a thelemite. Um, I see the same thing. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you met Gurjifians. I see the same thing with Gurjifians. It's like Gurjif apparently famously once said that having a bad personality and disliking people are no obstacles to the work. <laughs> and it's like, and, and all the Gurjifians I've met, maybe I just had bad luck. All the Gurjifians <laughs> I've met have been jerks. I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> it's a thing. Just that I've seen. Mm -hmm. It could be a coincidence. Okay. I mean, you know, my sample size is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a handful of people, so my sample size is small, but it could be, but yeah, I just don't know. Or maybe it's maybe it's how Gurdjieffians react to Thelemites. You know, maybe they react badly. I don't know. I have, you have to control for all the variables if you wanted to get to a scientific conclusion. Right, right, right. No, that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I mean, in Korea, where I'm located, there are no, um, like, Western magical orders. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, here, I, I recently got back from a temple stay. You know, Zen Buddhism is really big mm -hmm. here. And all, all kinds of other areas to explore. And uh, I know that, I remember reading in your blog, in some of your books, you mentioned that you were interested in Qigong, or you you also practice mm -hmm. Qigong, Qigong as yes. well, right? Okay, how'd you yeah, get I, how do you see that benefiting your um, your current practice? Well, so actually, so part of it, so how I got into it actually, is mm -hmm. that I have kind of bad joints, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, back in the 90s, I said, well, you know, I want to find, you know, some kind of exercise that doesn't mess with my joints too much. And so one of the things I went and tried is I, I did Tai Chi for a while. And mm -hmm. you know, the teacher who, the te the, because, you know, it's, and you're not, you know, it's like, that, that what, so there was, what was it? There was a comedian who was like, I don't even remember who the comedian was, but it was somebody I saw the joke was, you know, Fred says, you know, oh, you got to go learn Tai Chi so you could defend your stuff, yourself, <laughs> right? you know, and so you uh, go, right, class, it's like all slow, you know, and it's like, you know, burglar breaks and you're just like, oh, you're in trouble now, you know, moving your hands, you know, like <laughs> barely, you're like barely the, moving. The least threatening martial art you can imagine. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, but I, because I wanted to exercise and not, not mess with my joints, but one of the things that the teacher was into Qigong and taught us, you know, basic Qigong set, and I'm like, well, that's really cool, so I started to try and, you know, integrate that with my practice, and Hey, that's pretty interesting. And so mm -hmm. um, you can get um, energy work like that of whatever sort into your practice is super important. Um, it's like, I don't think I've come across anybody who's tried to do it who has not been impressed with it. Mm -hmm. Man, I mean, 
Crowley talks about that a lot in his stuff too, but Crowley learned a different system. Crowley learned the yogic system from India with pranayama and that stuff. And so <clears throat> what I do is I do Crowley stuff, but you know, where he does the pranayamas, I put, I put Qigong stuff in. So that's one of the that's changes cool. that I make. And then um, years after that, um, there is an opportunity to study uh, five element medical Qigong with um, a teacher here in town who was quite good. And so I took classes in that. And um, so I'm, so I know stuff like moving chi along the acupuncture meridians and stuff like that. Um, and I mean, really, you know, you could really simplify it quite a bit with, you know, inhales, exhales. Um, I've read up some more, like I've, some of the, like the Montauk Chia type stuff I've worked with, mm-hmm. like uh, the microcosmic orbit in conjunction with like mindfulness type meditation. That's really good. Basically, you just, you want your body of light to be free and flowing. And one of the things that one of the things that I do see people, and I I do think that this is a misreading of Crowley, um, but Crow there's some places in Crowley where he talks about doing pranayama without exertion and how that's wrong. And um, well, some people have interpreted that as, oh, when I'm doing pranayama, I must hold my body absolutely rigid, and I don't think that's correct. Um, having taken you know a couple of like hatha yoga classes and things like that. Um, so, I mean, I'm familiar with that. I have a little more with the joints. I have a little more trouble with the more athletic kind of yoga. Um, but, um, what you want to do is actually you're doing the bandha locks and then you're doing your ujjayi breathing with that. And you don't do that in qigong. Qigong does something different. Um, but I mean, that's what it is. It's like you're tensing these specific points on your body. You're not like holding yourself completely rigid. And it makes a lot more sense if you think about it that way. Yeah, for sure. And Qigong and Tai Chi in general are a lot more about flow and yeah. um, definitely a different approach. I mean, they're both working on your meridians and energy systems and chakras in a way, but um, mm-hmm. definitely from what I've seen of Qigong and Tai Chi, it's definitely more of a, uh, more of, what would you say, like loose. It's more loose and flowy, which is cool. Drawing silk. That's how you move. It's like mm-hmm. you, don't do, you don't do anything jerky, whereas the yogic system, there's more stuff that's kind of, that's kind of like pulsy or jerky or you hold like one position for a really long time whereas in qigong you're doing the breath and you're doing movement with the breath i mean it's just you know it's it's chinese energy work versus indian energy work is basically the difference right okay um yeah like i mentioned i've been reading your blog for a while i mean i haven't read all the posts and not some of the recent ones but uh it's a very excellent resource you have um some interesting uh articles you put on there and you also put on uh, videos of your uh, your ritual talks and what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, have you? I'm actually quite curious. Have you ever considered um, sort of? There's a lot of gems on there. I mean, you can just scroll back for months and years, and um, yeah. there's just information on there. Really, it can be information overload. But uh, I was curious if you ever considered like sort of condensing all you know the gems. There are a lot of gems on there, but uh, condensing them together, creating some sort of like gems of the uh, Alguades or. Um, yeah, I've, I've thought about cool. it. Um, like you know, e-book or something even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was originally going to put out a, a. I originally wrote up that manuscript had the brainwave model and a bunch of other stuff in it. Um, mm-hmm. Was going to be a book called Operant Magic that I came up with the first version of the manuscript in 2006, and a lot of stuff from that manuscript has wound up making it onto the blog over the years. I mean, yeah, I've been blogging since like 2006. It's like wow. It's like I'm like yeah. about 15 years now. That's a lot of and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uh, a lot of articles. 
Um, you know, one of the things I tried to do is like that magical instruction page. Um, if you found that on the upper bar there, um, if you're interested in my talks on rituals and my different rituals, uh, initiation stuff, commentary on the basic rituals, more of like the hardcore magic stuff as opposed to like scrolling through like weird news about um, <laughs> political you know, right wingers. <laughs> I, I, I make fun of. I make fun of Christian nationalists a lot because I, I, you know, I find them funny when I don't find them dangerous. But, um, but yeah. So if you if you go onto the blog, there is a, a there's a link up on the top of it called Magical Instruction. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't found that, go take a look at that because that's like a big index that consolidates all those serious posts about magic and ritual. You can just scroll down through those pages, and I've got links to all the articles. Okay. So. Um, so that's kind of fun. No, I have thought about doing some sort of an Algoides book. Um, right now, I've been trying to, we're working on getting, you know, mastering the 30 heirs out there. I mean, once I have that, um, I'm looking at a couple of other things which are going to be adapting some of the material from the blog. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Okay, cool. Yeah, maybe uh, once that book comes out and uh, I buy it and, you know, read it and go through it, as well as after I finish the um, Mystical Heptarchy, be cool yeah. to have a round. Maybe we can discuss those two books as well. And um, I'm, I'm always cool to talk about stuff, you know, just like get in touch with me on Facebook or whatever. Let me know. Happy to come on and discuss whatever. Okay. So how can people find you uh, online? Obviously, you have your blog, which is on it. Um, how do you spell that An out? Ananiel.blogspot.com. Probably easiest, go to Google and type in Scott Stanwick. Um, okay. You'll come up with links to the blog. Um, I also have an author website, which is at scottstanwick.com. That's got some stuff about my mm -hmm. books. I mean, I also write fiction, which you know I didn't even touch on here. But um, mm -hmm. the Enochian books sell better than the fiction, which maybe says something about the fiction. I don't know. <laughs> um, but... Uh. Um, but yeah, so I have an author website. The author website also has an RSS feed on the front page that links over to Algoides. You can click on articles there. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I, I would say, yeah, um, ananael.blogspot.com. That's the blog. Uh, but if you just look up Scott Stenwick um, on Google, I'm all over the internet. I've had articles up there I've, on their, that site for 15 years. So I'm not hard to find at all. Um, if folks want to... Mm -hmm. Oh, if folks want to friend me on Facebook, it's like, you know, go ahead. But if we don't have a bunch of mutual friends, maybe message me and let me know, hey, I'm a fan of your books or something like that, you know, because otherwise, I mean, I usually see if friend requests come through for people. I don't recognize them at all. No mutuals. I tend to just assume that they're fake or whatever, um, unless somebody says something specific. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I noticed you put... Scott Michael Stenwick. I was wondering if there's another Scott Stenwick running out, running around there. So you have to put Michael. You have to mention no, your middle name. No, I just, <laughs> you know, I just, I just like my middle name, Mikael the Archangel. You know, it's cool. Um, it's like, actually, yeah, Michael Stenwick is actually my father. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's like I am Stenwick is a very unusual name, spelled the way we spell it, and I am. Mm -hmm pretty much 100% certain I am the only Scott Stenwick on the entire planet. Okay, okay. So you should be easy to find. That's how I found you on Facebook. Um, pretty easy to find on there. And so, okay, yeah, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. And I look forward to uh, your next book and perhaps discussing that next time. And uh, thanks a lot. And until next time. All right, well, that's great. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. So thank you very much.